This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell today? What the hell is going on is we're approaching the two-year mark of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so we have invited a good friend of the podcast, Yaroslav Trofimov, to come on and discuss it. He's got a fantastic new book called Our Enemies Will Vanish. And you're, Danny's holding it up and I can't read the subhead because my eyes are so bad. <laughs> Our enemies will vanish, the Russian invasion and Ukraine's war of independence. <laughs> there you go. Thank you very much for the uh, for the elder care. Uh, so, first of all, Yarrow is Ukrainian. Uh, he was in Kyiv when the war began. He was in Kabul when the uh, Taliban invasion happened. He's one of the most storied experienced war correspondents in the world. He writes for the Wall Street Journal, and he's written a, a book about Ukraine that reads like a novel. It is just fascinating take on uh, the history, going back to how this started and how it's gone since then, all the problems with the Ukrainians have had in getting Western support and all the rest of it. And so we thought we would you know, bring him on and do a look at where we are two years into this, what are the prospects for Ukrainian victory? What are the problems with Western support? We talk a little bit about prospects of a Trump presidency and how that will affect Ukraine. And so it's a fascinating discussion. It really is. And, you know, Washington, Washington has the attention span of, you know, a gnat. A gnat. Uh, <laughs> good. We really do spend too much time together. Yeah. But, it, but it, it's accurate. And, uh, you know, first of all, we were paying a lot of attention in 2022 when this invasion happened. But then, you know, ooh, someone saw a squirrel and we stopped talking about what the Russians were up to. Then, of course, last year we had the Hamas attack on Israel and everybody was like, ooh. And then somebody saw another squirrel. World. I think the reason that this is so critical to understand is because it is a turning point. Uh, it is a moment when our enemies took our measure and found us wanting. Now, there are critics of, you know, the United States who can say, well, you know, no, that happened in 2014 when Putin bit off a big chunk of Ukraine and the world went, eh, that's a shame. Right. There have been numerous instances, Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Trump presidency and threats to withdraw from NATO, things like that. Everybody can pick a moment. But if you really want to settle on a time when the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans and the Russians took a hard look, not just at the United States, but at NATO as a whole and said, OK, let's see if you're going to step up. We didn't. Well, the game's not over. We're, we're helping Ukraine. Ukraine would not be standing if it hadn't been for uh, the aid that the Biden administration provided and the West provided. I think the, the deep problem is, is that Joe Biden doesn't actually want to win in Ukraine. He wants Ukraine not to lose, which is very different than wanting Russia to be defeated, because Joe Biden's number one fear is escalation. 
right? So he actually thinks that a, a decisive defeat for Putin would be destabilizing. It could cause his regime to fall and therefore something worse could come up and they could, you know, go to war with us or something like that. And so he's doing enough to help Ukraine not lose, but he's not doing enough to help Ukraine win. And this is generally the problem with democratic foreign policy, which is, you know, the Obama administration when Russia invaded in 2014, when Putin took his first chomp at the bit in, in Ukraine and grabbed a bunch of territory and grabbed Crimea, we put some sanctions on them and told them to stop and he paused, right? And then, uh, and then Afghanistan happens and he goes for more. And he can take Ukraine in small bites if he wants to. Um, and he thinks the Democrats, uh, you know, that Biden will go along with that. Biden, Biden doesn't want to win. He thinks that's destabilizing. And it's the same problem we're having with the Houthis right now. The Houthis are like firing at American uh, ships and we're and we're like firing back at the Houthis. It's Iran who's doing this and he doesn't want to escalate with Iran. So he won't hold Iran responsible for what's happening. He's constantly his fear of escalation is absolutely it's destabilizing and it undermines actual deterrence. Right. Well, okay, fair enough. It is absolutely paralyzing. And I agree that the White House is paralyzed in the face of not just a serious adversary like Russia, but even a really unserious adversary in some ways like Iran, like the Houthis. But come on, you know, yes, this administration has stunk. Yes, this administration has slow rolled support for Ukraine. And it has meant that the Ukrainians have not been able to seize the opportunities they've been given when Russia especially was making misstep. But Mark, there is a huge faction now in the Republican Party. In the House, we're seeing it. Very in the true. Senate, at the Heritage Foundation. Good Lord. So the fight that's going on right now in the Senate and in the House really is just a reflection uh, of this problem, of this growing part of the Republican Party that just somehow doesn't see the wisdom of defeating Russia. Forget Ukraine. Who cares? Okay, let's say we don't give a damn, right? But, but the fact that, that defeating Russia seems like a bad idea to these guys is just so weird to me. Well, what's the solution, Danny? Well, you know, again, this isn't all on Joe Biden, but so much of it is. You know, it was really interesting to me that in the wake of difficulties in the House and the Senate, the White House saw this not as an opportunity to show leadership, to go to the speaker, to talk to him, to figure out how to cobble together a coalition to support aid to Ukraine, to Israel, to Taiwan, um, with maybe some border provisions. No, they saw it as a political opportunity exactly. to underscore how the Republicans suck. And I'm like, how is that helping Ukraine? Yeah, no, the president goes out and says, you know, the MAGA Republicans don't want to support Ukraine. Are you loyal to America or are you loyal to Donald Trump, GOP? And it's just like, really, if you're the president of the United States who actually cares about Ukraine, that's your response. You should shut the hell up, sit down, invite the speaker to the to the White House, to the Oval Office and hammer something out and quietly to get the thing done not use it as a political opportunity in a political campaign. And, you know, the reality is 
that the the reason why Ukraine is in the situation it is in right now, where we just saw over the weekend, the Russians are now for the first, the Russians had not taken an inch of territory in 2023. Now they've taken over their first city. They're on advance on five axes across across the, uh, the border in Ukraine, and they're starting to take territory again. Why the hell is that? Well, as Yarrow points out, it's because we didn't give them all the weapons they needed in 2022 when they when the Russians were on their heels. And now all of a sudden Biden is thinking about giving them long-range attackums to report him. Give them the friggin' long-range attackums. Give them all the weapons they're asking for. You know, and we shouldn't be in a situation where they're they're now suddenly because Congress hasn't acted they're they're rationing artillery. We should have given them everything that they needed a year ago. You know, you've got one party where you've got a faction that doesn't want to help Ukraine, and another party that claims to be the supporter of Ukraine but doesn't give the weapons they need and puts them in a stalemate because Joe Biden doesn't want to win. He doesn't. He thinks that he wants to stop Ukraine from losing. He doesn't want to destabilize Putin. He's afraid. There was just a report today that he's worried that if they push Putin too far this year, then there's a 50% chance that he'll use a tactical nuke. You know, No, he's not going to use a tactical nuke. There's no, he has no interest in using a tactical nuke. There's so many reasons why he wouldn't use a tactical nuke. His military might not carry out the order. It would blow back into Russia. It would not gain, help him gain any territory. It's, it's like these people are self-deterring. Look, Mark, you are exactly, exactly right. But I will say something additional. And again, I don't, uh, you, you know, because you, know, you and I have discussed this on previous podcasts, what I think about, you know, the president and the fact that he's really faltering. One of the reasons why he can't invite the speaker into the White House, uh, the speaker, Chairman McCall, the people who can actually find a way out of this problem is because Joe Biden can't conduct this meeting. Oh, right? absolutely. There you go. No, so, but, 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 you know, again, folks, when, when you say, you know, yes, of course, Joe Biden is faltering. Can he stand up and give a speech? Can he stand up and, you know, get all juiced up and potentially give the State of the Union? Sure he can. Can he manage strategy from the White House as he did 20 years ago in the Senate? The answer is he can't. But also the speech he gave you know, where he attacked the mega Republicans for standing with Trump instead of standing with Ukraine and all the rest of it. That was written. <laughs> Somebody wrote that for him. That wasn't just him going off like, you know, cranky old Joe, uh, you know, 80 uh, year old guy yelling, get off my lawn and the White House lawn. That was a strategy. That was a decision by the people who put the words in his mouth. And as a presidential speechwriter, I don't normally talk about speechwriting that way because that's not how it works in most presidencies. But they put those words in his mouth because he just says what they were, they were right in front of him. That was a strategic choice by the so-called adults in the room. So you've got that on the Democratic side. And on the Republican side, you've got the anti-Ukraine Republicans who are, have a gun to the speaker's head. And are, you know, threatening that if he passes an aid package, they're going to topple him just like they toppled Kevin McCarthy. It's just such a freaking disaster. And can I just say something about these Republicans? If you're pro-Trump Republican, you should not want Putin to conquer Ukraine this year. You should be for an aid package because Donald Trump says he's going to negotiate a deal, an amazing deal in 24 hours to end the war in Ukraine. 
No, not if Ukraine wins it this year. <laughs> He's not. You want, you know, if you want Donald Trump to have this great diplomatic triumph, you should be giving the Ukrainians aid so that they don't conquer the country. Because guess what? Putin's not going to have any incentive to negotiate if he's in Kiev and he's sitting on NATO's borders. The only way he's going to have an incentive and Trump, you know, Trump wants leverage, right? That's he's the great deal maker and he needs leverage. Well, if you want to give Trump leverage, then give them the weapons now so they can push the Russians back as far as they can. And then Trump can come in and triumphantly cut the deal that ends the war. But he can't do that if you don't give them the aid. So even if you're in, even if you don't think that we should be in Ukraine, then the way to get out is to give them the aid now to strengthen Trump so he has the leverage to save the day when he comes back into the White House. But they're not smart enough to see that. That's the problem we face, that we don't have people smart enough to see what you and I see so plainly every day in on this podcast. There you go. There you go. Rent yes. complete. Rent complete. Right. You ignorant slut. Okay. It's time for us to stop ranting. Uh, I feel like I'm saying that all too often now. It's time for us to stop ranting and uh, and bring in our friend Yarrow Trofimov. As Mark said, uh, he's the chief foreign affairs correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in international reporting for two consecutive years, 2022 and 2023. He's covered everything, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Gaza, Iran, Iraq. If there's fighting going on, uh, Yaro Trofimov is there, uh, and he is the author of this simply uh, terrific new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. Here's our interview. Yarrow, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here. So we don't have a green room, but in our virtual green room, I said to you how much I loved reading Our Enemies Will Vanish, your uh, your new book uh, about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's outstanding. And one of the things I really love, actually, just as a very surface matter, is the title. First of all, tell us about the t- where the title comes from and then... Tell us a little bit about the book. Well, the title is really uh, part of the Ukrainian national anthem uh, that was composed all the way back in the middle of the 19th century when there was no Ukrainian state and even publishing books in Ukrainian was outlawed by uh, the Russian Tsars. And the anthem goes, our enemies will vanish like dew at sunrise, which is a very poetic way of disposing of your enemies if you compare it to, say, the Marseillaise. And kind of this theme came through in reporting for this book because again and again people just like say these words hopefully initially and then they actually did vanish and you know ukraine did regain half of the territory that russia initially occupied and uh, two years into the war ukraine is still around as an independent sovereign state in control of more than 80 percent of its land so while we focus on all the setbacks of the counteroffensive and the problems uh, but the international support for Ukraine, uh, there is still this fact, this miracle that this David had beaten Goliath. No, it's fascinating because actually the Polish national anthem is Jeszcze Polska nie zginęła póki my żyjemy. There's a long, Poland has not disappeared so long as we are living. So it's very, there's a very similar uh, history and a very similar uh, of Russian occupation. So I, 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 I feel the same yeah. way. But tell tell us we want we want to go to the history, but tell us right now how what are your hopes on your enemies vanishing? <laughs> well, uh, um, I think it's not going to be easy, and it will take more than one sunrise. I think 
the historic opportunity for a quick Ukrainian victory uh, was lost in the summer and fall of 2022. And I talk about this a lot in the book, about how the Ukrainians were begging uh, the Biden administration and other Western allies for tanks, uh, more artillery, for planes, for uh, uh, more multiple launch rocket systems. And all of that was either supplied in a very small amount or denied outright as outlandish. You know, the Germans said, how can we give you German tanks? You know, what will the Russians say? You know, German tanks in the plains of Ukraine again. Uh, and so uh, when Russia was at its weakest in the summer of 2022, it had only about 100,000 troops, combat troops in Ukraine, because Putin would not listen to his generals, would not mobilize reservists, because doing so would have meant acknowledging that his so-called special military operation was not going to plan. Ukraine managed to break through. It broke through in Kharkiv, it broke through in Kherson, but it couldn't pursue its offensive because it had run out of, uh, of gear. And because Russia successfully used nuclear blackmail to throttle Western support, what people in Washington called escalation management, but really was the escalation management was managed by the Russians. Again and again, Putin's nuclear threats did not kill American support, but they curbed it to a point that uh, the Russian army could survive, regroup, and now bank on outlasting the Western world to fund Ukraine. We see what's happening uh, in Congress, uh, with many Republicans opposed uh, to continuing funding for Ukraine. And uh, when all this mountain of steel uh, actually was given to Ukraine the following year, in 2023, it was too late. You know, the Russians had mobilized several hundred thousand reservists, filled you know, the front line with men, built fortifications, laid minefields, and when the Ukrainians did launch the, this uh, counteroffensive in uh, the summer of 2023, it was just too hard. The situation had changed and the historical opportunity was lost. And so now we're facing a war with no end in sight. And certainly President Putin has no incentive to end anything this year because he hopes that if President Trump comes back to the White House, he could get a much better deal. And I think from what they say in Moscow, the aspirations are still the same. You know, any Ukrainian state is unacceptable to them. Even then, they didn't give the Ukrainians what they needed. <laughs> you know, the, the counteroffensive was delayed by months while the Russians were digging in their fortification. And even then, they didn't give them the aircraft they needed for superiority, the air defenses. They didn't give them the tanks until later. The first Abrams tanks, I think, arrived a few months ago. So we had Jack Keane on the podcast, and he was explaining how, uh, you know, what they call combined arms warfare involves certain elements. And if you don't have those elements, you don't make progress. And so even, you know, a year later, they still were forcing Ukraine to fight with its hand, one hand tied behind its back. Well, it's certain that, you know, one of the arms was missing in this combined arms warfare. You know, they would not fire the jets. But if you look at what was given in 2023, if that had arrived in Ukraine a year earlier, yes, it would have helped a great deal and could have possibly allowed the Ukrainians to break all the way through to the, to the um, Azov and Black Seas. So one of the things that I particularly like about this and, and this so much of this book for me feels like an indictment of the Biden administration. And part of that is, of course, because I'm in Washington. 
Uh, but part of it is because actually there are a lot of us who want to see a, a, a Ukrainian victory. And not, by the way, just for Ukraine, but for our interests, because we have a shared enemy in Moscow. But one of the things I particularly like is that you have this, for good or ill, this war background. You were in Afghanistan for a long time. You were in Iraq. And one of the things that troubles me the most is that when I look at the Biden administration, the predilection is to blame the victim for what's happened. In other words, if only you had fought better during the summer offensive, then maybe this wouldn't have been. And you saw all of the newspaper articles that ha that came out last year with the Pentagon backgrounding reporters that, in fact, it was just Ukraine that sucks, not we that had disappointed them. First of all, what is the perspective in Kyiv? Yes, of course, we know what Zelensky thinks. We know his deep disappointment. Uh, but, but what do average Ukrainians think? Do they think, wow, you know, maybe it's time for us to give up? Or are they just in it to win it no matter what? I think uh, you're right about the blame game. And it's quite unseemly that there's a lot of people in Washington trying to shift the blame onto Ukrainians. And let's face it, the Ukrainians are not perfect. And there were, there were tactical mistakes made. And the Ukrainian military, facing a much more powerful foe, did not always, you know, act to the best practice. And also because, you know, there are objective issues, you know. It's it's running out of uh, manpower, you know. They, they didn't have time to train all these new troops because so many of the professional soldiers had been killed in two years before. But also, it's very easy if you sit in Washington and be an armchair general. But nobody who is in charge of the U.S. military now has ever seen combat against a near-peer enemy of the kind that the Ukrainian army has been fighting for nearly two years. And so a lot of the recipes uh, didn't work uh, because they're just not actually working in the fields. Now, going back to the um, sentiment in Ukraine, this is magical thinking that, oh, well, you know, if we just pressure the Ukrainians, if we just deprive them of weapons, they will settle this war at the negotiating table and give up their ambitions. But the thing is that there is no one else on the other side of this table. What Russia wants is all of Ukraine. I mean, Putin just a few weeks ago said Odessa is a Russian city. President Medvedev, you know, Putin's predecessor, who is still the head of the ruling party in Russia, said in January, you know, any Ukrainian state, no matter how friendly to Russia, is a mortal enemy to any Ukrainian. And Ukrainians have a choice die or become Russians. He was the moderate, supposed to be the moderate that we were going to bring into the West. Because exactly. He was the one who was touring the U.S. and taking selfies with Steve Jobs. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I wanted to mention, because I think our listeners will enjoy it, is um, that you, in the beginning, actually quote a number of Western and Russian icons on the question of Ukraine. Um, the one that stood out to me, you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, when Ukraine was relinquished very without drama, let's say, believed that this was a, a, a tragedy for Russia, but that B, in fact, this is a very prevalent view, even among anti-Soviet you know, anti-dictatorial anti types like Putin, that in fact Ukraine is Russia. There's nothing to talk about. This is more of an ideological fight than people appreciate. I think the core problem is that the views that Putin has on Ukraine are not an outlier. 
you know, a great many Russians, we don't know if a majority or not, certainly before the war, thought that Ukraine is not really a country. It's part of Russia, historically. And you were talking about Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn acknowledged that Ukraine could exist, just minus, you know, half of it that he said belongs to Russia, like Odessa, Kharkiv, and Donbass. But Joseph Brodsky, you know, the U.S. poet laureate, also wrote a poem on Ukraine's independence, saying, I wish the Dnieper River would flow backwards, and uh, and I want to spit into it. How dare you? And he used a whole bunch of slur words about Ukrainians. So, and I guess the whole invasion was premised on the notion that Ukraine is, is a fake construct, and the Ukrainians are really Russians, and they won't resist. And we've seen how a fatal mistake this was for the Russian military. Also, it's interesting, you know, one of the heroes in the West is Navalny. Even in, from prison, he made some statement where he said, I can't remember what the number of districts was, but like he said, the opposition has to campaign and win in every Russian district, and the districts included all of Ukraine. Well, Navalny famously said when Crimea was annexed that, you know, Crimea is not a sandwich, you cannot give it back. Were you born in Kiev? I can't quite remember. Yes, I was. Yes, you very were, much you so. Were, you were born in Kiev. You talk about, you know, where your grandmother was born as well. I think that everybody underestimated the Ukrainian national character and the Ukrainian national feeling. You you spent a lot of time detailing your conversations with, with Ukrainians and obviously the war as well, but your conversations with Ukrainians. And, you know, obviously we know now that we underestimated the uh, both Ukrainian patriotism, I think we can call it that, and Ukrainian determination. Somebody who's from Ukraine uh, knew that that was the case in the beginning. But two years in, there's a lot of pressure, still sub rosa, from both uh, Washington, but also Berlin, a European capital, for some sort of peace talks. What do you think the sentiment in Ukraine would be towards some sort of negotiated peace? I, dare I say, you know, because <laughs> it probably would look like this, Minsk Three. In other words, something that was not worth the paper it was written on, but would be a respite. Another Budapest memorandum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... <laughs> Let me come back first to this issue of like, people underestimating Ukrainian uh, patriotism and nationalism. I think it's not just underestimating, it's profoundly not understanding it. Because Ukraine has a history, a very dark history. You know, Ukrainian nationalism, like many other ethnic nationalism in the 30s and the 40s, was very dark. You know, and there were plenty of Ukrainian collaborators with the Nazis, and, you know, the Holocaust had some of the darkest pages in Ukraine. And then Ukrainian nationalism was, was quite exclusionary in its nature, like most nationalism in the 1930s in Europe, especially Eastern Europe. And I think there was a great rethinking of what it means to be Ukrainian in the 70s and the 80s, in part because many of these Ukrainian nationalist dissidents were in prison camps in Siberia with the Jewish refuseniks, with Baltic dissidents. And the understanding was that a Ukrainian state would only be possible if it's built on a whole new basis of inclusiveness. What is Ukrainian is not based on blood, on religion, on language, but on the idea of of a Ukraine that is open and, and democratic. It's kind of very similar to the American idea. Very non it's, it's not very not it's a very not not blood and soil nationalism. So this is why now Ukraine has a Jewish president, has a Muslim Minister of Defense. The head of the land forces happens to be born in Russia and come from Russia. 
and nobody cares. And I think if Ukraine had been built as an ethnic state in 1991, it would have collapsed. It would not have survived this war. And the Russian speakers of Eastern Southern Ukraine would have backed Putin, would not have backed uh, the Ukrainian uh, state. And I think this is something that Putin didn't realize. I think it's something that people in the West also didn't properly realize. Just how much the society changed and the identity changed uh, of Ukraine. And, and now, uh, as for uh, peace talks, you know, everybody knows that if there are no security guarantees, that any any cease to the firing now will just allow Russia to regroup and to keep going and to grab more land and to kill more Ukrainians. And so what you hear from a lot of people is that I'd rather fight now than have my children fight in 10 years or 5 years. But then, of course, there is also the issue of capacity uh, and, and how much stamina uh, Ukraine has and you know, how can you fight if you don't have any weapons. I don't think there is that much pressure to settle either from Washington or Berlin right now. I think there's an understanding that until the U.S. presidential election, not much can happen because Russia doesn't want to settle. And I think, if anything, the fear of U.S. walking away is uh, forcing people in Europe to increase support for Ukraine. We've seen that Germany has increased the money it's spending in Ukraine. The UK certainly has. And uh, because it is an immediate national security risk to these countries in the way it isn't for the US, which has an ocean separating it from Russia. Before we go to the end game, let's talk about the beginning of the game, because you go into this in your book. Uh, how did we get here? And it seems to me like Events far from Ukraine have contributed to Ukraine's trouble. So if, if, I remember that when President Obama was president, he drew this red line in Syria where he said that if Assad uses chemical weapons, uh, that will be a red line for us and we will respond militarily. And then Assad did it and Obama didn't want to enforce his red line. So he turned to Putin and said, help me, help me uh, cut, a, cut a deal to uh, get me out of this. And Putin read that as weakness. And it wasn't long after that that he invaded in 2014. And then we didn't respond very well. We didn't provide lethal aid. We imposed sanctions, and and it sort of stopped briefly. And then it resumed again after Afghanistan and after the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It seems to me like Ukraine's troubles have related in part from American weakness in other parts of the world. Is that a fair assessment? I think it's clear that all these crises are interconnected, and people in Moscow are in Beijing you know, are looking at the U.S. posture around the world and, and draw the conclusions. So what happened in 2014? Yes, you know, there was the, you know, the famous red lines that were ignored. And then when Russia invaded uh, for the first time, you know, in Donbass, sparking a war that, by the way, killed 14,000 people in a few months. You know, kind of went unnoticed, but it's a lot of people. They're not Palestinians, Yaro, so nobody cares. And so, uh, well, in fact, everybody did shrug, and uh, President Obama said in his interview with the Atlantic that there is nothing the U.S. can do ever to prevent a Russian domination of Ukraine. I'm paraphrasing here, but that, that was just... And, you know, Germany signed on to the Nord Stream 2. You know, uh, the main priority for Washington was the GCPOA uh, with Iran, and Russia was kind of emerged scot-free from that. Now, fast forward to Afghanistan. Everyone in Moscow watched. Which you covered on the ground. Which I covered on the ground. For, and, for, uh, for our listeners' benefit. I mean, this is not like you're, you're an armchair analyst. You were on the ground in Afghanistan covering. I was very much on the ground in Afghanistan, and I was in Kabul on August 15th, uh, 2021, 
The previous night, President Ashraf Ghani had walked around the city, rallied the troops, said, we will fight to the last soldier, we will never surrender. And by noon, he was in a helicopter flying to Abu Dhabi and the Taliban were in my hotel. And, uh, you know, by the end of the month, the American military had left Afghanistan and the Taliban were flying Black Hawks and driving, driving Humvees and MRAPs and had this treasure trove of American weapons left to them. And I think those images, on one hand, inspired Russia. I mean, America is so weak that they don't do anything to us. And on the other hand, uh, they also tampered any support for Ukraine. Because the thinking was, well, Ukraine is weak, Ukraine is going to collapse, just like Afghanistan. Anything we give them will just end up in Russian hands. So why bother? So Ukraine was pleading for weapons, getting nothing. In the U.S., the great and far flew weapons, saying we're giving them javelins. In fact, there, were on, there was only 90 of these sort of short-launched anti-tank missiles against thousands and thousands of Russian uh, tanks and armored vehicles coming across the border. And I was in Kiev. Uh, when uh, the war began. And in the back of my mind, I had this fear, what if Zelensky does the same? What if he pulls an Ashraf Ghani? You know, because he had done that, and he was urged to do that. Boris Johnson told me, the British Prime Minister, that you know, I called him and said, you survival is paramount. Why don't you move to London and we'll have a government in exile like Poland did in 1939? And he was getting the same calls. That worked out great. Exactly. And he was getting the same calls from you know, other world leaders. But he didn't do that. He was defiant, he stayed, and uh, I remember two days later just driving through Kiev and seeing thousands of people just gathering at a stadium. I couldn't understand why. And it turns out it was just people from all their neighborhoods around just coming to get weapons and uh, to face the Russian armies coming towards the city. So uh, there was this like massive popular outpouring of defiance that also came in part from leadership by Zelensky at the time. I mean, this is something he, nobody can ever take away from him, despite all the other flaws he may have. I think when we look at the situation now, and I think people don't necessarily understand this in Washington, a Ukrainian defeat in February 2022, when the U.S. shut down the embassy, pulled out the diplomats and said, you know, good luck, goodbye, have a little insurgency, we'll help you with some stingers. Hasta la vista, baby. That defeat in 2022 would have been a tragedy for Ukraine would have been a strategic victory for Russia, but would not have been an existential defeat of the U.S. and the NATO alliance. Now, after hundreds of billions of dollars in weapons and other aid were sent to Ukraine, after all these high-level commitments to stand until the very end, uh, if Russia were to be successful in Ukraine now, no matter what they say in Washington, it's not our war. It is seen, it would be seen as an American defeat everywhere in the world. I think that's exactly, exactly right. But I also I also think that is not how the Biden administration sees it. I want to ask you to expand on a version of what we've sort of already talked about. You, In addition to this wonderful book, you've obviously done amazing coverage for the Wall Street Journal. And one of them, one of the pieces that you've written recently that I know has gotten a lot of currency is, um, you know, is this new axis of evil. But, but this is really an outgrowth of, in many ways, Ukraine. I mean, we could say Ukraine is an outgrowth of what happened in Afghanistan. I do have a very Washington-centric view, and I wonder if you see things the same way. I mean, to my mind, so much of China's additional aggressive adventurism 
China's willingness to support Putin, Iran's decision to step up and provide weapons to Moscow, drones that are being used, uh, you know, they're not great, but certainly being used by the Russians. Now, North Korea's decision to provide weaponry to Moscow has really accelerated this, you know, we can call it a new Cold War, we can call it a new axis of evil. Am Am I seeing things the right way? And is there any way that a negotiated peace with Ukraine decelerates this this problem. Well, I think I would distinguish between China and the other two in you know, sort of so-called crinks. I mean, Russia has a de facto military alliance with North Korea and Iran, which began with Iran and North Korea helping Russia with what it needs. Iran first with uh, its drones that have proven highly effective actually in Ukraine, very very effective. They're a key part of the Russian air campaign. And then uh, North Korea supplied Russia with apparently almost a million artillery shells. That's three times more than the entire European Union managed to supply Ukraine in a year. And this is changing dynamics in the battlefield now because Ukraine is running out of ammo and North Korea is helping, is, is vital to Russia. And Russia has something it can give them. And it is giving them advanced technologies that could really change the balance of power in other areas of vital importance to the U.S., you know, in the Middle East and in East Asia, the detriment of Japan, South Korea, and America's allies in the Gulf, and Israel. And so China, unlike North Korea, Iran, and uh, Russia, has an economy, a global economy, so it's very careful with the overt military aid it provides, and it's also watching the Russian adventures in Ukraine, and it's, I think, it had some chilling effect to an extent on its plans for Taiwan. Not in the sense that we're not going to do it, in the sense we have to prepare better. And we need more time, maybe. And, uh, and, and we should not repeat the Russian mistakes. Now, a negotiated settlement in Ukraine that lifts sanctions on Russia and that allows it uh, to prepare for another round, I don't see why it would stop it from continuing cooperation with all these countries. It would just pocket the gains and keep going. And leaving alone the fact that it's not actually interested in any solution right now, because if you look at it from the Russian legal standpoint, you know, Russia annexed four Ukrainian regions, none of which it controls fully. Two capitals of these regions are currently under Russian law, occupied by Ukraine, quote-unquote. There is no way Russia can settle on the current front line without it being seen as a strategic defeat for Putin, because it would leave sovereign Russian territory, quote-unquote, under foreign occupation. So any solution... Any, any sort of diplomacy is impossible unless there is a big shift in the battlefields for either side. The other thing, you know, so, so let's, let's assume, just for sake of argument, that the U.S. election comes, Donald Trump is elected president. And he has said, I will negotiate a deal in 24 hours to end the war, right? And he actually, interestingly enough, I think Zelensky's handling of the phone call probably saved Ukraine in a lot of ways because Trump actually publicly has said he likes Zelensky, that Zelensky could have thrown him under the bus and he didn't. He's a good guy and he likes him. And he said that if Putin doesn't cut a deal, he'll tell Putin I'll double the aid to Ukraine. So he thinks he can cut a deal. But he's also, I think, you know, in his mind and in the mind of sort of the America first side, uh, one of the things they would give away is NATO membership for Ukraine in a deal, right? Okay, well, we'll have a deal... Uh, where, you know, we stop the war and we'll promise that Ukraine will never be admitted into NATO. But if they're not admitted into NATO, then that 
just as a pause in the war, right? If they were, if, if Zelensky tried to say, okay, I have a divided country, I need the way to, the, the only way I can accept the lines for temporarily is to bring the rest of my country into NATO and have that Article 5 guarantee uh, for West Germany or Western, in this case, Western Ukraine. How, is Can there be peace without Ukraine eventually coming into NATO as part of that deal? It's not like the Biden administration is really eager on Ukrainian NATO membership. No, they're not. Uh, so I think talk of NATO is is a little bit like talking about how many angels there are on their uh, sort of the pin. What ma- what Russia wanted in the negotiations about Ukrainian neutrality in its failed talks uh, early in the war, when the what they were t- calling neutrality was disarmament. They're not opposed just to NATO; they were opposed to Western weapon supplies and Western military training. And obviously, without Western weapon supplies, there would be no other weapon supplies because, you know, Russia would not sell weapons to Ukraine. And so, um, I think this is a distinction people are, uh, not noticing. It's a crucial one. Neutrality as disarmament is something Ukraine will never accept just because it's death. Now, if Ukraine is allowed uh, to develop its military and it's allowed to, to, you know, keep, keep procuring <clears throat> weapons and then there's a question of Western security guarantee. And Ukraine has been asking uh, for these guarantees. But again, you know, so far, nobody uh, has volunteered to provide them for obvious reasons. Nobody wants to fight Russia. Well, not just that, but we haven't abided by the security guarantees we provided. I mean, Mark referred to the Budapest Memorandum, but for people who don't remember, this was our... For our listener, tell, tell us what the Budapest Memorandum was in that history. Briefly. Yeah, well, I mean, the Budapest Memorandum uh, was an agreement under which Ukraine uh, surrendered uh, the nuclear arsenal. It had inherited from the Soviet Union. I mean, the wording of the of these uh, assurances, not guarantees, uh, was quite vague. It was signed by the U.S., U.K., and Russia, but they all promised to respect Ukraine, Ukraine's territorial integrity. Obviously, Russia hasn't done that. What Ukraine is looking for now is something much more binding. But you know, we have NATO, right? NATO has Article Five. But even in NATO, in, you know, in the Baltic states, in Poland, there is a great concern that should Ukraine be allowed to lose, you know, would the U.S. actually go to war over Estonia? Would the U.S. actually risk nuclear confrontation over, you know, Latvia? Many fear that Putin is convinced that it will not. And so, uh, you know, NATO by itself, considering the political headwinds in the U.S., is seen as a less and less of a promise of security, which is why countries like Poland are spending so much money on bulking up the military and buying weapons, and and so are the you know the, the, the other countries in Russia's vicinity, and why and this, which is also why all these countries are doing so much to help Ukraine because they have a not very unrealistic fear that if Ukraine falls, they will be next. I don't think that is unrealistic. No, I mean I think it's completely realistic to assume that we have a Chamberlain-esque period. The one perverse thing about Trump coming, as you rightly noted, is that is that the potential of a new Trump term, a second Trump term, has actually caused some of our NATO allies to be a little bit more serious about their commitments. Uh, so, uh, you know, I hope that they will continue to, to stay serious, even if Joe Biden is reelected. Exit question for me. One of the reasons why 
I enjoyed your book so much is because you have that depth of perspective, not simply, um, you know, as a as a Ukrainian, but as somebody who has served in all of these conflict zones, somebody who knows Europe, somebody who knows Russia, who knows Ukraine, who knows Afghanistan, who knows Iraq. I'm not sure whether your editors are trying to kill you at the Wall Street Journal, but you could certainly make that argument. Um, but, you know, you've been doing this for, for 25 years at the Journal, a, a quarter of a century. Look forward. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but we are eventually going to get past this moment, both in America with our um, aged leadership and also hopefully uh, Putin. But look forward. How does this settle out? Is there a broader war, as all of the newspapers in Europe seem to be fretting about, or does this resolve itself in a better way? I, I think optimism is a dangerous um, business in my line of work. So <laughs> that's why that you you haven't learned optimism in serving in all of these places. <laughs> no, no, it rarely pays off. Uh, so I think what we are seeing now is that all these conflicts are becoming increasingly interconnected, and you know the war in Gaza has really helped Russia and helped China, for example. And you know, certainly as far as Russia is concerned, it really lessened international pressure on Russia, which can now posture and claim higher, higher moral ground. And uh, with this, you know, Iran-China, so Iran-Russia-North Korea alliance, you see the material element of it, not just political and diplomatic, you know, with new technologies undermining, uh, the spread of new technologies undermining the U.S. and its allies across the world. But the big question is, what will China do? And China, because it has a longer time horizon, may not necessarily try to append the cart in the immediate future. Uh, but for for these other regimes, it's kind of existential. So I don't see any reason why they would stop trying to disrupt the international order uh, together, just as the Western alliance seems to be more and more disunited. My exit question, I want to go back to something you said in answer to the first question. You were describing how there was this moment of opportunity in uh, summer of 2022, and then by the time we finally gave Ukraine the weapons, it was too late. Is it too late? Is it too late for a military victory for Ukraine? No, it's never too late, but it's just going to be much, much harder. And I think a lot now will depend on the internal cohesion of Ukraine and Russia. We saw that Russia is a very brittle society with the Prigozhin putsch last year, but nobody saw coming. It came very close to to really threatening the regime. We don't know what else is in store for Russia as these pressures from the sanctions and from the war continue. You know, hundreds of thousands of Russians died in this war. This will have repercussions at some point. And Ukraine is also under strain. And Ukraine's internal stability depends also on Western funding to keep the country afloat. And so I think it's increasingly the battle of wills and the battle of the two societies, which one breaks first. And I think if a society in Russia breaks, then the front line will break too, and vice versa. Well, you're certainly not in the business of optimism, but if I may thank you, I want to say again, this is a wonderful book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. It's not just for people who are interested in, in Ukraine or who care about foreign policy. It is a huge learning experience and a pleasure to read. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Yara. Take care. So, Danny, what do you think? So, I'm worried. I think the problem is one that we've talked about before. I found this new podcast. This is not, not a digression. I found this new podcast when I was in Australia called 
and the rest is history or the rest is history, which is these two Brits. Uh, it's really, really terrific. What sucked us in was somebody recommended that we listen to their podcast about Captain Cook and the discovery of Australia. And, uh, and you know, the rest is history. I listened to all the rest of them as well. I'm listening to a lot of their podcasts about the 1930s. And, you know, there is this endless repetitive theme about how the world misses the opportunity when the fruit is low hanging you know when we could have stopped hitler from rearming when we could have stopped him from taking the sudetenland until eventually the inevitable happens but of course it wasn't inevitable it was very much evitable and now oh, i Lord. feel <laughs> the, the second world war um, it, it was avoidable. It didn't have to happen. And it, and in many cases, it was not because of the choices that Hitler made. It was because of the choices that the Brits, the French, the Americans, and everybody else made. Uh, right now, what you see is, is a very analogous situation. We are making bad choices. We know where our enemies are going because, as you and I have said so often, Mark, they tell us. You and I have talked about this repeatedly. We know what the Iranians want, what the Chinese want, what Putin wants. And the problem is not that they're not transparent about their evil aims. The problem is the choices that we make. Well, Hitler was transparent about his aims and we didn't want to listen. And I'm, I'm reading uh, this wonderful book called the, Those Angry Days by Lynn Olson, which is about the lead up to World War II. And what was clear is that, you know, it's, it's so analogous to today. Because what was clear back then is Americans were tired of war. They, they, we had just gone back, fought World War I. Uh, they didn't want to get drawn into another European conflict. And so there was just this broad sentiment of, like, we don't want to get drawn into these wars. You know, let the Europeans fight it out. And, we, and it's not our problem. And, you know, we didn't do the things that were necessary to prevent us from getting drawn into another war. And it seems like we're there again. There's war in Europe. There's war in, uh, in the Middle East potential of war in, in in Asia, though I was one of the things I found fascinating that uh, the Yarrow said was that maybe the Ukraine war has delayed uh, China's plans on uh, on invading Taiwan. But, you know, so we've got this moment in history where we could act decisively to deter these things and prevent us from getting around to the war. And we're all Americans are tired of war because we just got it out of Afghanistan and Iraq. It's sort of like World War One. They don't want to get involved in another war. And so we're not doing the things short of American deployments, troops that could actually prevent the wars from happening, prevent from us getting drawn in. And we're going to we're going to end up in World War Three again because of that. You know, it's ironically, it's the isolationists who end up ensuring that we do get into these wars. <laughs> you know, that's the story of history is the guarantor of America getting drawn into wars has been isolationist sentiment. Yarrow was talking about how if we had just taken the opportunity in the summer of 2022 and just given them all the weapons they needed, this could have been ended decisively a year ago. And here we are two years later, the counteroffensive is stalled and we've got it. We've got a stalemate. And we're still not giving them the weapons they need to decisively prevail. And that is going to have consequences in other parts of the world, just as American weakness in, in Syria and American weakness in Afghanistan with that catastrophic withdrawal had consequences in Ukraine. Right. We are not going to have that many more chances to play games with our enemies before we are on an inexorable path. And, you know, I particularly love the fact that when you wrote that wonderful piece about how helping Ukraine helps us, that 
J.D. Vance in particular took up his spear. No, no, he wouldn't have a spear because that's the military-industrial complex. He simply <laughs> brought out his big mouth and accused you of being in bed with, with you know, defense contractors. A, of course, if only we were in bed with defense contractors. AI, AI doesn't get very much corporate support at all. But B, this is so often the refuge of these isolationist scoundrels. You know, they refuse to look at our enemies and want instead to criticize people who believe in American leadership and in American strength. And of course, they'll be the most enthusiastic about killing the bad guys once we're attacked. But for now, they are the enemies of freedom and they have plenty of analogs in history. I love the way you call them the, the, the Charles Lindbergh caucus because I think it's completely accurate. But Charles Lindbergh without the pilot's license. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. Uh, Charles Lindbergh, who was, you know, in many ways a courageous hero, unlike so many of these, these uh, uh, unbelievable, well, you know, let me not use an epithet. But in any case, you're right. Look, we're not going to have that many chances to do the right thing. We've made bad choices so far. And the only question is when our luck runs out. Well, the ir irony of J.D. Vance's attack on me and saying that I'm a tool of the defense contractors is that the only reason he's a senator is because of millions of dollars from Peter Thiel, who is the founder of Palantir. So if anyone owes his, uh, owes his uh, job to defense contractors, it's J.D. Vance, but we digress. Um, right. Yeah, look, That's we, right. Palantir is indeed a huge contract with the U.S. intelligence community. So that's and, a and, a great, and a great company. Uh, Alex Karp is, uh, is amazing, and he's, uh, he's now uh, contributing to Republicans for the first time because of uh, because of the rise of anti-Semitism on the left. But that's a whole, that's a topic for a whole nother podcast. Um, look, we've it, the lesson of history is two things. One, that our enemies telegraph their punches every I mean, you go back, you know, Lenin wrote what is to be done <laughs> and we ignored it and the czars were overthrown and the Soviet empire was uh, was built and it killed 100 billion people. Hitler you know, told us that of his plans to uh, eradicate the Jews and build an Aryan superstate, and we ignored him, and World War II happened. Osama bin Laden <laughs> told us, he issued a fatwa in 1996 telling us that he was declaring war on, the, on, on America, and we ignored him, and 9-11 happened. Vladimir Putin wrote a manifesto in, in 2021 saying that he was going to invade Ukraine and reunite it with Russia. We ignored him, and look what happened. And Xi Jinping has been absolutely clear about what he intends to do in Taiwan, and we're like sticking our heads in the sand and saying, oh, he will, he'll never do it. It's, it. And then the isolationists aid them by saying, well, we got to stay out of these wars. we got to stay out of these, uh, these conflicts. And they end up guaranteeing that we do get drawn in, because in the end, when they do finally do what they promise to say, then American troops get sucked into it. So, you know, the lesson of history is take your enemies seriously when they tell you what they're going to do and impose consequences on them or others will take a signal that weakness weakness is provocative and we will pay a price and we all want to if you want to avoid american troops fighting in europe again help ukraine win it's that yeah, simple it's as simple as that isn't it and uh and that is one of the lessons of of this book because not everybody is is as, as strong as persistent as courageous as the ukrainians have been in the face of Russian aggression and uh, and Western disloyalty. Not everybody is like them. There are a lot more that are like the French in 1940 that fell in a week. So 
let's take advantage of the opportunity that the Ukrainians have given us to to do the right thing. Amen. Good lessons for all of us. Uh, get the book. You guys will love it. Thank you for being with us as always. And see you next week. See you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.